Hello, and welcome to another installment of Obscurity Knocks, the podcast where we dig into the recesses, the deepest recesses, of an actor's career, and if we're lucky, we manage to do so without screwing up the sound. If you've been following along with this podcast, however, then you know that, in fact, we are not very lucky on that front at all. I'm your host, Will Harris, and I'm also a one-man wrecking crew in that I always manage to wreck the audio somehow, after which I feel so shitty about it that I find myself hemming and hawing about even releasing the resulting conversation at all. That, of course, is precisely what happened with our previous episode with John Hurd, but given that John Hurd has since passed away, and may he rest in peace, I can only say that I'm very, very glad that I decided to release it after all, because it features a number of stories that I think it's fair to say might never have been heard, no pun intended, if I hadn't just gone ahead and put it out, warts and all. This brings us to our latest episode, a conversation with Xander Berkeley, an actor who, not unlike the aforementioned Mr. Hurd, was kind enough to indulge me by guesting on this ridiculously premised podcast, despite having already endured being interviewed by yours truly for the AV Club's Random Roles feature. With this episode, I can at least say that the fault lies not with any screw-up of mine, but rather with the screw-up of the recording program I was using. I won't give you its name, because any publicity is good publicity, and although this would be bad publicity, it doesn't need any publicity because it's terrible. I'm moving on. After the interview was over, the program froze up and stayed that way, leaving me no choice but to restart it, and after the restart had completed, the recording was nowhere to be found. I'm glad to say that I did have a secondary recorder running for the majority of the interview, but I regret to say that I didn't think about starting it until a few minutes after the conversation had begun. As such, I have to provide a lead-in to the conversation, which I'm about to do, but first I have to offer an apology to Xander Berkeley, because I feel awful that it's taken this long for the episode to debut, and I feel worse that the reason for the delay is ultimately just because I was so stricken with embarrassment about the situation. That's a really stupid reason. What I should have done was just say, okay, here's what happened, I have a really shitty computer, it totally fucked me, I don't have the full recording of the interview, and the recording that I do have is not a good one. But I hope you'll forgive me anyway, I'm going to go ahead and put it out. Instead, I just kept going through the situation in my head over and over and over again and over again and over again, worrying about the mistakes that had already been made that I couldn't fix anyway, worrying about what was going to happen when I tried to move forward with it, and does this qualify as a causal loop? I, I don't know, and it doesn't matter anyway because I'm sure you're sick of hearing me talk. So here's Xander Berkeley, who, when we joined the conversation, is in the midst of discussing his appearance on the short-lived ABC sitcom Open All Night. So the J he references is Jay Tarsis, the co-creator of the series. This, by the way, was the first obscurity that we discussed, so you really didn't miss much. I'm just sorry you missed any of it at all, because Xander's a great guy, a great actor, and he's a wonderful storyteller. I hope you enjoy. And I hope you join us again for our next episode, which will have great sound, because I hope to have a producer. Or I probably will not come back at all. In which case, I hope you've enjoyed all these proceeding. Again, please enjoy Xander Berkeley studio executive and uh you know she comes by it honestly because i think jay was just i forget who his writing partner was but uh they were just brilliant guys and they had this they were cinephiles and so they went after film actors <clears throat> for for a lot of what they did and even those who weren't yet established film actors but who were destined to become like joe and myself in a, in a lot of movies and um and it, it was, yeah, I remember the, the thing that stuck with me is that I thought that thing was going to go and uh, be around for a while, and I was really looking forward to playing the character and taking it in different places, this fried-out little hippie. <laughs> and uh, and they he had a really cool name, but it was, it was the week that we were working on it, they were spraying melathion 
doctorate to kill the medflies. Right. And so suddenly somebody came up with a great idea of calling me medfly. And it was funny, but it felt like it was very temporal and topical. And that it felt to me like, ah, this isn't going to last. Now, as soon as they named it medflies, like, it's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. And they, they won't bring me back or the show won't come back. It's, it, it, I just remember feeling like it was indicative of uh, <clears throat> temporalness. <laughs> but it was sure fun while it lasted. And Joe and I hit it off. You know, he had like one or two lines. He like, toilet. I think he, he, was, he was wearing a towel on his head. He was playing an Arab. It was very, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Montana, go to Arab. <laughs> yeah. But he just done bleacher bums or bleachers or whatever it was, the theater thing out of Chicago and brought it here. And uh, I just had come from New York doing a lot of theater, and we just immediately hit it off, and we're still friends. I just did, you know, a few years back, I did an episode of Criminal Minds with him, and, and uh, I run into him every now and again on the voiceover circuit, animation stuff, and uh, just he's a, he's a beautiful guy. and, and uh, I, I went out with the girl that played my girlfriend on the show for a little while, and, and uh, Sam Whipple, I, I tried to, uh, I directed a play and, and uh, had him in it for a little while. And, you know, it just, uh, it was a, one of those things, Lisa Mione was the casting director, and we're still dear friends. It's one of those things where, you know, it's totally obscure, and yet it lingers, uh, and it uh, remains in your life for years after, after the experience of a week. I know it was an adaptation of a British sitcom, although I think the uh, the biggest reason a lot of Americans know it is that David Letterman did a cameo on, on uh, one episode. Oh, did he really? Yeah. Uh, let's see, yeah. But it's kind of a brilliant idea, of course, all these brilliant ideas always come out of, out of the UK. But, uh, yeah, of a place that stays open all night, like a 7-Eleven, and just the weird family that that runs the joint and the weird people that come in at any hour of the night. Yeah, it's, it was a great concept. All right, let's see. Next up we have Tag, the assassination game. Uh, yeah, that was... Yeah, go ahead, ask your question. Um, well, on the surface, it sounds like it's a, a ripoff of uh, Gotcha, but in fact, it actually came out a few years before Gotcha did. Uh-huh. Um, gotcha, Gotcha. <laughs> exactly. That, how did you find your way into that? Was it just an uh, audition situation? or? Yeah, you know, that's, that's another interesting one. Zoetrope Studios, uh, Coppola's, you know, relatively short-lived attempt at creating his own studio yeah. uh, for a while. Yeah, it, it, you know, it was just an incredible atmosphere over there on that studio lot. For the years it was there, the casting directors, Jake Jenkins and Janet Hershenson, who would go on to cast me in Apollo 13, uh, A Few Good Men, and many other big, big-ass movies down the line, uh, liked me a lot when they met me way back when I first came out here. And I, I had, like, oh, my God, they, what was the... The, what was the Coppola movie he was doing right around that time? Um, one for the Heart, was that it? Well, yeah, One for the Heart was filming while I was at audition for that. But there was one that they had just done. Rumblefish was the follow-up to the one that made all those young guys with Tom oh, Cruise. And all the, those uh, guys. Out, the Outsiders. The Outsiders. Well, I had been cast originally 
when they were going a little bit older with that. Like I was, I had a part for a minute and a half uh, before they went, wait, we're going to go younger and make it totally commercial. And they they did. They, they went with all these guys and they basically made like the new Rat Pack, the Brat Pack. Uh, everybody in that became a, a colossal star. And uh, But I was Pony Boy, I guess it was, for a, a minute and a half. And they'd had a number of auditions for that. And uh, they, they sort of felt like, well, I was one of their, their guys. And I had six or seven auditions for the, the main bad guy in TAG, the assassination game. And it was one of those things where I, I can remember listening to my... Uh, David Byrne had just put out that record with Brian Eno, uh, Oh, uh, Life of yeah. Bush Post. Yeah. And there was some completely insane music on that that I remember listening to in my car on my headphones before I would walk in to go play the psycho in this thing. <laughs> and it was the first time I remember sitting around in a circle of psychos about to audition. <laughs> so one taking turns after the next to go into the room and do their psycho and and uh and psychos psyching each other out in a circle uh seeing who could be the baddest of the bad and and not not really because well, everybody's trying to get into character stay in character everybody's in their early 20s and and everybody's like you know trying to find the zone and stay in it while they're cranking it up to get ready to bust through the door and show them their stuff, brand them with their hot iron. And uh, and it's just so funny because sometimes, you know, you, you'd just be able to tell who was trying to psych you out and who was just getting into character. And, and I, I can remember making friendships there because, again, this is a million years ago, but you can just remember the people that had a sense of humor about themselves and the people that were kind of being dickish. <laughs> and the ones that just sort of had the spirit of like, look, they're going to get one of us, and they're not going to get the other as the rest of us, and that's the way it's going to be. And and uh, if one of us gets this one, then the other one's going to get the next one, and we're all in this together kind of thing. And, and those are the guys you bond with and you're still friends with 30 years later because uh, you've just been through the wars together. And those are the guys that tend to survive the wars because the the other attitude just doesn't tend to last. You know, you'll, you'll some of those people will get there and sear through because they've got that blind determination. But it's not as much of a of a capacity to survive. But yeah, I remember six or seven auditions. They put it on videotape, and a, a guy who became a really good friend of mine actually got the part because he had dark hair and dark eyes, and that was really what they were looking for, a balance of types. Sometimes it just comes down to that. And, um, and But the director loved what I did so much that he couldn't not give me a part. And so he gave me this part in the very beginning of the movie that just runs around and chases. You think that this guy's it's the beginning of a, of a thriller, and, and it's French New Wave uh, sort of uh, French... New Wave Noir was the style of the cinematography and the guy, the style that the director was shooting for. The guy went on to do a bunch of movies. Um, and it had a, a good look, and it, but it felt like total suspense thriller until I'm cornered and I'm, I'm in the back alley and, and all of a sudden, thwap, the guy pulls the trigger and it's a 
it's a rubber dart gun in the middle of my forehead. <laughs> and that sets the tone that it's a comedy suspense thriller. And, um, but it actually has a real bad guy in it that I didn't get to play, but I got killed off in the opening. But yeah, that's my story there. <laughs> and, but it maintained a relationship. Again, I think Jane and Janet, the casting directors, felt bad that that was the only part I got after all of the effort I put into getting the part. And that they, they, the director used a lot of my ideas for how to play the guy with the guy that ended up playing the guy. Uh, and everybody was kind of aware of that. And so I think they ended up feeling very, and, and were really wonderfully loyal to me after that, for the so rest of my career. Who was the guy who ended up getting it? Bruce Abbott. Okay, so that was the role. That's what I was wondering, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he's a lovely guy. I don't, know, I don't know what happened to him. I don't know where he's been. I know he ended up... He was married to uh, a couple of gals I worked with. He married the girl from that. Oh, wow. Um, who then, uh, can you guess who it is? Because Jim Cameron ended up marrying her later. Uh, wait. Man, I know this. She, uh. <laughs> she, was, she was in Tag the Assassination Game. Uh, Linda Hamilton. There you go. <laughs> he was married to her, and then he ended up marrying Kathleen Quinlan. While I was doing uh, Apollo 13, they were married. I don't know what ended up happening there. I haven't seen them since then. Well, I was curious, uh, not to identify who, who who was dickish and who wasn't, but who was actually on the psycho circuit? <laughs> oh, man, you know, there were different circuits. There was I, I remember there was a guy, um, Tom, I wish I could remember his name. He was a lovely cat. He was gay, and, and he died of AIDS early on. And it was a big loss, but he gave a title to one of the circuits called Offbeat Left of Center. <laughs> and that was actually a term that agents and casting directors used. And it was one of the first categories that I found myself in where I felt like I fit in. Because <laughs> um, I, I remember going to auditions and... Uh, to play like because one casting director saw a young Steve McQueen in me and so I, I ended up going for a lot of like cowboy kind of roles with her early on and uh, I'd go into the audition just sort of dressing as myself but just you know a little rough or whatever and then there'd be like four other guys in the room with boots and cowboy hats on and I thought yeah am I supposed to be doing this because I would feel silly walking down the corridors of you know cbs or whatever it was whatever studio lot it was that you, you had to i don't know wearing a cowboy hat in la i just it felt far-fetched and then and then going to the next uh, audition uh, and finding myself in this group of of uh, the nerds you know with the glasses and the bow tie and like and i'm just again just dressed like myself and i well, I'm certainly not fitting in with these guys, but I guess I can string a sentence or two together and come across as reasonably intelligent. So they, they're, they're going to try and throw me in with these guys, and uh, that's not working. But, yeah, just early on, agents trying to find where the hell is this guy going to fit in? What group is he in? And then psychos, you know, because I, could, I had theater training. And I could manipulate my energy, and, and I could do different accents and do different uh, physical characteristics. And, and uh, so I, I ended up in the psycho pool, 
And yeah, it's a it's an interesting group because some of them are the are the best, most solid guys around. And uh, I'm trying to think who is still around now that was in that early pool. I'll have to think about that. I, I might have to get back to you on the on the early psycho pool and the survivors of it. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Uh, next up would be uh, Doctor Paradise, uh, which is a, a pilot that did not go to series. But, no, but you know, just last night I saw Allied, and uh, and I was reminded that uh, there was an actor in Allied who was uh, trying hard to get into that Doctor Paradise show at the time. <laughs> a, young, a young Brad Pitt. Really. Uh, yeah, um, and they went with Tommy Hinckley, who I adore. But you know, at the time, it seemed like <laughs> right? I love Tommy Hinckley. Um, but uh, like, you could have had Pitt. That thing would have been a hit. Um, but uh, yeah, Frank Langella. Oh my God! You know, I, I, I loved him. I saw his uh, Dracula on Broadway before I left New York. And, and uh, a little bit in awe of him and getting to do this. We, I had such a great part in that. That was one of those things where you audition. It's kind of the, when I started, at that time, I was basically a film actor and I would only do the pilots that I thought would never get picked up yeah. because I didn't want to be locked in on a TV series and be associated only with one character forever. Right. Um, and then lose my ability to be obscure for the rest of my career like I so successfully done. Sabotaging success, fame, and fortune. Um, but not success, actually, because I feel it's been very successful for me to continue to work constantly and playing all kinds of really fun, different characters and getting the audience to more or less believe I am that guy each time out. Right. And that was sort of my aim, and I certainly accomplished that, I think. Even if I have sabotaged the, the big carrot that most people come out here to grab for, which is the fame and fortune. Um, and a lot of great roles have been denied me because I didn't go for that, um, because it's commerce at the end of the day, and they need a big name to put big numbers of seats, uh, big numbers of butts into, a, into seats in the theaters. It's just a, a reality. Um, so I think there's a little bit of self-sabotage in my hiding while pursuing success as an actor. But there was a fascination with with Obscura from the start, and Dr. Paradise reeked of it. A guy named Ron Zimmerman wrote it, and I remember going in the in the room. I just first of all, this character to play a completely kind of twisted psychiatrist. Uh, who is on an island, a tropical island, and he smokes cigars in a hammock while he's, uh, you know, doing, getting his therapy sessions. And he, he's, he seems very high at the time. Uh, and he, his mind just works in wonderfully uh, random and brilliant and obscure ways. And, I, I loved everything about the show. Um, Sally Kellerman was a pain in the ass, I'll be honest about that. She was a diva that didn't deserve to be, like, I mean, what had she done besides MASH, the movie, and then she she uh, denied them the, the 
she didn't do the TV series because she was above it, and she was bitter because she wasn't uh, ever in anything after that for the most part, and except who, who's who's the guy that did the movie Sally Kellerman? Sally Kellerman, the guy that did all those weird documentaries, sort of independent films. Anyway, but she she came in like, and she was trying to like out diva frank you know and they would like <laughs> wait down the hall to see for the table rating like who was going to make the final entrance and she'd wear some big sun hat and like oh dear who are you and why are you trying to upstage frank langella because you know he says he's the rightful heir to the throne here and uh it's not your show please she's just playing your you're playing his sister who's a doctor and uh on this the, the anyway, I don't mean to get it, but she's just a, there's a lot of a lot of people that are such pains in the neck in our business that just want to make a big deal out of themselves and you know you do great work and, and that will make the deal for you. But make a big deal out of yourself just to make a big deal out of yourself and you're going to be a pain in the ass and you're never going to work again. And that's what's happened to so many people along the way who I've watched just make everybody's lives miserable and. Uh, it's hysterical to, uh, to to watch the behavior. I, I am amused more than anything. Um, literally, I can remember her like peeking in to see is Frank here yet, and then disappearing, <laughs> and then and then making her entrance after he came in. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that there, there were there were problems with the show, uh, but it was also during the writers' strike, and it was that crazy time when they couldn't change a line because. Those were the conditions of the writer's strike. Yeah. And uh, there's even a guy, Barry, somebody or other, was on the show who ended up becoming SAG president. And one of his political things that he did was he ratted them out for changing a line. I think <laughs> he didn't like it. It was a weird, there were weird things going on. But my favorite memory from Dr. Paradise, in addition to uh, just working with Ron Zimmerman, who I'm still friends with to this day, was mad as a hatter. But And his one, most recent quote that I love of Ron's is, never met a bridge I didn't burn, um, <laughs> is driving around with Frank Langella during lunch, uh, where we went out together to get away and, and have lunch. And I had a cassette of the Pogues, and uh, fairy tale uh, of New York, oh, yeah. and he had a cassette of Patti Lapone, and and we played our favorite songs for each other, and we were both brought to tears by each other's songs. It could not have been more disparate and different, but it just to me was a testament of our of our passion for life and as actors uh, and we, we loved each other in that in that moment and uh, as we as we worked on the show we, we totally hit it off and I don't even know if you remember me to this day but I just uh, remember feeling great uh, you know fraternity with him during that show and during that uh, particular experience oh it was uh, Barry Gordon I guess was the uh, yeah yeah a little little well, I forget what the term was during the uh, the the, uh, the trials when they, they they were doing the red baiting and people <laughs> informed on <laughs> yes I don't know the term but I know what you're referring to yeah <laughs> yeah it was um, one of them 
Let's see, I guess next is the Gumshoe Kid. Gumshoe Kid. Yeah, that's another strike story. Go ahead. Um, well, that one, I just, I'm kind of fascinated by the, the diversity of the cast. I mean, uh, Tracy Scoggins, Vince Edwards, uh, Miguel Sandoval. Yeah, there has to be a casting director in there that either was a big fan of Sid and Nancy. I think that's what it was. <laughs> it wasn't. It certainly wasn't Vicky Thomas that cast it. But uh, the, the casting director was over at the old Raleigh Studios, and she was a sweet older gal, and her husband was a was an actor. I think he died around the time he was even older than her. But they were just a sweet old couple, and. Uh, she she loved the movie Sid and Nancy and the actors in it. She put Biff Yeager, who was also in Sid and Nancy, in the movie, and Miguel and me. And uh, it was one of those movies that happened during the strike. We, they were able to just pull it off, like, right before. Um, and uh, Joe Man Duke, who had written uh, A New Leaf, and, and uh, I think he'd even directed it, with Elaine May and... and uh, Anyway, and I think Mike Nichols and Elaine May were in the Middle East. Anyway, um, he had some street cred, but he he'd sort of lost it by then. And and uh, Joe Manduke and his his I remember his the lighting guy. It's just one of those old school kind of eighties experiences where you you gamble on something and you go this this is going to be good, right? And, <laughs> and it was one of those guys with the gold chains who comes in and just lights everything bright. And the the, the producer was a dentist, um, but you know he put up his money for it. And it was like, oh my god, this guy's never going to get his money back. And family, his wife's going to kill him. That's um, straight out of Ed Wood, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and but. Vince Edwards was Ben Casey, and his character's name was Ben. And I'm playing this this you know gangster uh, who's uh, I can't remember loan shark or something like that. But he owed, he owed me money, and I've got to lean on him. And so like I felt bad, but I kind of couldn't couldn't help but have fun with with uh, Vince and, and the fact that he played Ben, ben Casey, and the, his character's name was Ben. And I get right and says. So Ben, <laughs> and I point to him and I'm touching his nose with my finger. So Ben, when are you going to give me my money? <laughs> Whatever. But uh, it was just a fun fun thing to do with fun people. And uh, I always wonder what happened to that kid that did it because he seemed like he had a good commercial quality to come shoot kid himself. But, uh, but shoot, you know, you know who else was in that? And I ended up going out with for a while, and I just adored was, was Pam Springsteen, oh, yeah. Bruce's, Bruce's kid sister, and and uh, she's just a super sweet, amazing person. And um, yeah, but Biff Yeager and Miguel and I had done. We all did three or four Alex Cox movies together, and and I'd completely forgotten that they were in that movie. <laughs> And so somebody like sent me a clip from it, and they were both in there. I go, "What the fuck? <laughs> young, young Biff, young Miguel, young me. What is this movie?" And I'd completely forgotten I'd done it. <laughs> what, what was that? Oh yeah, that was during the strike. I, just, I, I don't know if there's a story behind it or not, or tied to it, but Arlene Galanka was also in the film. Yeah, and who was she? Uh, in the film, I mean, her character's name was Gracie Sherman. But, I mean, she just, right. her <laughs> her back catalog, I mean, 
Hang 'em High, Airport 77, My Tutor. <laughs> yeah, see, that's those casting directors. They just knew wonderful people, and they pulled in their friends, and they just said, let's, let's fill this up with cool, fun people. <laughs> All right. We had a great time shooting that thing. Yes, the uh, next one is The Last of the Finest. Uh, you know, can't you just tell from the title that that was a retitle that killed the movie? Because they had to rename it. <laughs> well, I know that they, uh, they're, they made your <laughs> character name pretty, uh, cliche, Fast Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you guys, you, can I just drift? Do you want to ask me? Yeah, well, I mean, question? all I was going to say is just because it's not that well known a film as, as per, uh, course for this show, uh, but Brian Dennehy, Joe Pitaliano, Jeff Fahey, Bill Paxton, and yet I'd never heard of it until I went researching. I, that's got to say something about the film. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and you know, Dennehy's, uh, the, the leading lady, is Hugh Jackman's wife. <laughs> who didn't do too many movies. What's her name again? Deborah? Deborah Lee Furness? Yeah, Deborah Lee excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Nicole Kidman's dear friend and, and married to uh, Hugh Jackman still to this day um, yeah she's been a big star in Australia I think um, all those people Panliana we did so many movies together and yeah that should have been and the guy that directed it John McKenzie Frenzy McKenzie as they often called him <laughs> uh, a, a Scotsman uh, a, a wonderful character had done a, a brilliant movie called The Long Good Friday. Oh, yeah. Bob Hoskins. Right. And you must know that. Thomas. I do, absolutely. Okay. I've got it on my shelf, in fact. Great film. And Janet uh, Hersenson, Jane Jenkins and Janet Hersenson cast me in, in The Last of the Finest, which was not the first of the or, or the best of all titles. <laughs> um, it was called Street Legal, which was a much better title. And um, they they discovered somewhere into the shooting of it that it was uh, the name was taken by a, a show that was on Canadian television. <laughs> street street legals can't use it. What are we going to use? The last of the finest. What? <laughs> no, they're not. They're not. They're they're going to call it that. Well, there goes the movie. Because it wasn't that bad. Um, and yeah, Fast Eddie. Um, you know, again, that was probably in the wake of Sid and Nancy that I was getting offered a lot of those kind of drug dealer, loan shark, scalper kind of characters. Um, and uh, I think it was, I, I, I'd been in Mexico City doing another, even more obscure thing called The Assassin. Okay. And the assassin had bleached white white hair, and um, which the Mexicans loved. They called me Huero, El Huero. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm in the middle of shooting that dear friend of mine who I'd worked with before in a movie in Chile in, in 1987. I'd left Nicaragua in 1987 from doing Walker <laughs> and gone straight to Chile. So from the Sandinistas to the Pinochets, which we'll save for another interview series about political 
insights in foreign countries. Um, but the same director that I've done a movie in Chile with it now had me in a movie in, in Mexico City uh, where I'm playing uh, the assassin, in the assassin. And then they moved my dates on uh, the Fabulous Baker Boys up. And I needed to get out of my commitment to the assassin because I had to do the fabulous Baker Boys because I had to work with the Baker, you know, with the, with the Bridges brothers and <laughs> and Michelle Pfeiffer was the biggest star around at the time and and uh, my dear friend John Hess who directed both uh, the movie in Chile and, and the Assassin in Mexico City uh, understood my plight and he said, well, you know, uh, Zan, if if, uh, if you're the bad guy. I mean, if somebody else kills you, then they become the new bad guy, right? And I said, I like the way you think. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've been shooting more or less in chronological sequence, and there was a big thug, Jorge Reynosa, who was one of my henchmen. And, and uh, we wrote a scene right there. We sat down and wrote it where he takes me out for a drive, and um, and he just stops the car. Or, yeah, he stops the car and he just says, the boss, there's something I got to tell you or something like that. And, and I go, what, what, we got to go, why, why, let's go. And he goes, but this is important, boss. And and he just reaches across in one move and I had him uh, line up the, because um, the, I always love doing um, very practical effects without special effects. And I, I, I lined up some caked um, stage blood on the back of a on the back of a blade, a switch switchblade, and I had him just whip out the switchblade and and wipe on the on the back of his thumb this uh, against the back of the blade this thick stage blood, and then just go straight against the, right across my throat, and I, I'm holding a, a little sponge filled with blood that I immediately so the audience gets to see on camera this this red slice appear on my neck suddenly, abruptly, out of nowhere. And then I, I throw my hand up to, to the cut and then through my fingers comes the blood. And it was just a fucking great effect. And uh, and I immediately, for John, I said, I, I know what we'll do. And I've been wanting to try this. And I knew this guy, Jorge, had done like 70 movies in Mexico at the time, back to back. And I knew he had the chops and he could do it. He's this big, dangerous looking guy. And, um, and so, you know, and it was towards the end of the movie, and he just took over, and he just this scary-looking motherfucker, and he did. He just, he became the new bad guy. And uh, he became the new assassin, and I had been the assassin through the whole movie, and then he assassinated me. <laughs> so it was just, and it was just great. Uh, you know, I love guerrilla filmmaking, I think, more than anything. And, and uh, it's part of my obscure fascination. But I got to go back and fly back the next day and my hair was dyed brown but it turned green first um, and then it went brown for the fabulous Baker boys and then uh, I, I washed my hair and I, I think it was a week or two later that I was shooting um, The Last of the Finest and I, by washing my hair it had gone orange so I think I had orange hair so in, in the course of like a month, I had white hair, dark brown hair, and kind of bright orange hair all, all in a row in different movies. And that, again, was part of my uh, my repertoire. I was 
mixing it up and making sure an audience will never be able to figure out I'm the same guy twice. <laughs> well, as it happens, the uh, the next one ties right into John Hess because it's not of this world. <laughs> yeah. See, I'd known John since I was five. We, we discovered that later. <laughs> Our parents were both involved with the same, had many the same interests when we were kids growing up in New York. Um, and I'd met him on the first student film he did when he was at AFI, and uh, we'd stayed in touch from that, even though I didn't do the film. Um, and so, yeah, he directed the, the movie in Chile called The, the Lawless Land, and we just bonded so, because we'd been friends at that point, and knowing we wanted to work together, and he sent me the script when I was in Nicaragua for the movie in Chile. And that was just such a, an intense time in, in, in Santiago and in, in the high desert, the sun plays into Atacama and living in these villages and, and in Antofagasta right by the coast. And, and we, we all bonded so much on that movie. And again, the one in Mexico City, Catherine Hardwick was our production designer. She's a huge director now. We were good, really good friends from the theater as well. And, and so these were life experiences with friends in foreign countries, and and uh, that takes a friendship to a whole other level because it's like it's like being in a war because you're up against it. And uh, in a couple of those movies, I was almost killed a couple of times. Yes. Uh, and um, so John and I are just deep lifelong friends, and uh, so when he called on me to do this this movie, this CBS sci-fi movie of the week not of this world what was I going to just say no to him he'd, he'd written me out he'd killed me off and I was playing the star of the assassin I owed him one so yeah what happens in it As a, a, an alien sucks my like sucks the life out of me yes uh, in fact uh, the, the alternate title of the film is Space Killers Space Killers Oh my God! <laughs> I guess. And, then, and I was just surrounded by kind of TV. Well, who were they? Who was in that? It's a, a, a lot Martinez. of uh, a lot of character actors. Uh, Pat Hingle, uh, Tracy Walter. Yeah, you know. And there again, Tracy and I had done all these Alex Cox movies, and I think the Grifters. Uh, Pat Hingle and I did was in the Pat Hingle's in the Grifters, and uh, a couple of other movies that I did with him. Um, there's like this great obscura ensemble out there and, and uh, Vicki Thomas was certainly tapped into it, responsible for it. When she casted Nancy, there were, I think for a generation, there was casting directors and directors that, uh, that looked at that movie and goes, I want that guy, I want that guy, I want that guy. <laughs> Some different scenes in the movie that just, and we all ended up working. I think Tracy was in uh, Repo Man that Vicky also cast, that Alex directed. And, uh, you know, you kind of see those faces and those performances and you go, yeah, I want some of that magic. And a lot of directors kind of, I think, pay their homage to another director that they've admired by taking their, their acting choices and, uh, and working with them. Um, and so, yeah, John did that to a great extent. He, he loved a lot of those the repertoire of, of great character actors and, and put them in to, to make the uh, the TV actors that CBS at the time said, you, if you want to do this, this is who you got to use. 
to make them seem more grounded and real. And and I got to do some of my own practical effects in that. Even though I, I wrote all my own dialogue, he he, he let me. You know, everything I ever did with John, I I wrote all my own dialogue. That's very cool. Yeah, I mean, or at least got to tweak it to whatever extent that I I did that with a lot of movies. That's sort of my obscure uh, skill that I never asked for credit for or get to get paid for, but because it always just, to me, I was always grateful after a lot of scarring experiences in early 80s television where you have such shitty lines that I was just happy that you have to say exactly as written. But I was just always delighted when they would let me improve the dialogue whenever I could. And I've been an improviser from all the way back to when I started out in the theater when I was in experimental theater at 15 and 16. And so I was happy to be able to bring the ability to improvise and, and bring fresh dialogue and natural dialogue to, uh, to anything I did. Always grateful to any director that let me and less concerned with credit or payment for it. So it remained a ghost skill and uncredited, but it kind of word got around and a lot of times people would turn to me to help sweeten scripts and polish dialogue. See the next one is another one that I was amazed that I was not familiar with. Uh, Donato and daughter, uh, where Donato is Charles Bronson and daughter is Dana Delaney. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I guess it was a TV movie, and I didn't realize that Bronson had done TV movies. Like, I guess his other stuff is so high profile, you tend to forget about that. Yeah, yeah, he uh, he didn't do too many. And uh, it was towards the end of his career, towards the end of his life. Um, he didn't seem very happy having to do it. Um, but he was a he was a good, serious, very serious guy. Simple working class kind of sensibility to him, um, but uh, very solid, very professional. And uh, Rod Holcomb directed that. Oh, yeah. I just love Rod to pieces, and I love Dana. Just adore her. And, um, you know, playing the psycho in that. Um, you don't say. Yeah, dark serial killer. I, I kind of, that was towards the end. That's I kind of, there were a few that I did. And I just felt like I can't go there anymore. It's, it's, it, it pollutes your psyche and, and uh, your metabolism almost gets disturbed by it. Now, but I, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you go. I was just saying, I know it was based on a, uh, a Jack Early novel, but uh, did you get the impression, not that you would have been in it, but if it was uh, intended to be like a, a pilot, or was it just a straight ahead movie? Uh, straight in, uh, maybe I think I, I I don't know that it certainly wasn't presented as a pilot in any way, shape, or form. Like it was definitely a movie of the week, one-off. They weren't putting contracts or deals together for anybody to commit them in any way. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this next one uh, I find particularly fascinating: the fifteen-minute Hamlet. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting with all these, these obscure things you're picking, they, they do have like some crazy pedigree to them, like list two's in that. Uh, in, in particular, the name that really leapt out at me was uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Right, right, yeah. I thought there were some others. Well, Todd Loiseau, who oh, yeah. directed it. Right. He was just a kid then, but he's going on to do a lot of stuff. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Now, uh, uh, how did that come about? How did it come about? Uh, I did, uh, um, you know, Billy Bathgate was one of those things that the movie itself wasn't so great, but the friendships that... Uh, that were formed, you know, Steve Buscemi and Kevin Corrigan and, um, you know, Lauren Dean, who played Billy Bathgate, and uh, crazy, crazy cat John Costello <laughs> passed away. Um, just a whole bunch of people in Todd the Wise. We were all staying in, in Saratoga Springs in the same old hotel while we were shooting that. And uh, it was just, it was the peak of autumn, and it was an amazing bunch of people. Lauren played, there's a beautiful grand piano in the place. Lauren plays classical piano beautifully. And uh, so we would all hang out when it was too, too cold outside. You know, we'd come in after a long day outside. We had a lot of days, scattered days off. It was a big-ass movie, so we had lots of days off to just hang out in the autumn back east you know and it felt great just to be in that neck of the woods and, and uh, around such great people and uh, oh yeah Anastasia Tra Trainer, um, who's married to Scott Cohen and just like just so, so many good people and Todd and she were in these scenes together also with Kevin and and uh, we just all hung out and we, you know, we ate meals together and listened to music together and, and went out to movies together. I remember we all went and saw uh, Goodfellas together in the movie theater as a little bunch. And, and it's just like we were bonded uh, as a group then. And uh, Todd was just a kid, but he stayed in touch. And... Uh, you know, I remember we rehearsed it in our backyard here because I was in my backyard at the time. I was single. And, um, I was one of the only people that had a big backyard, and, and we rehearsed all of Safe in my backyard. And I can always remember, like, and in our house in the backyard. So we had the whole thing mapped out because Julianne and, and uh, Todd Haynes both lived in New York at the time, and we didn't, it was a small movie. and so we did all the rehearsing and the same thing with uh, 15 Minute Hamlet. A lot of these guys were New Yorkers, and so when everybody came out. And I remember Philip Seymour had just done that movie Twister or something. And oh, yeah. He, he, just, he was so down on big Hollywood. He wanted to go right back to New York and do a play again. And he, he just hated Hollywood and movies, and he just wanted to do theater. and. And uh, but he was really happy we were doing the 15 minute Hamlet and Tom Stoppard's wonderful little piece, which uh, Todd had made even more abbreviated than the 15 minutes that Stoppard had written it to. <laughs> but it holds up. Uh, did you see it? Did you look uh, at no, it? No, I, I have since found it and never had a chance to actually sit and watch it. I couldn't find it at first. 
But, uh, and Austin Pendleton, he's, he's, he plays Hamlet. Yeah, that I, that particularly struck me. That's, that's, that alone makes me want to watch it right there. Strange choice. Very strange choice. <laughs> but I think Austin was like uh, Todd's acting teacher or something in New York, and he just wanted to see him play Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> I played Shakespeare. I got to play Shakespeare, for God's sakes. And you've still got the goatee from it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. So I guess next is Persons Unknown. And yeah, I did two things back to back. Nothing personal and Persons Unknown, and I always get them confused. Which one was that? Persons Unknown is, I mean, it's a, one of those ensembles that you look at and can't believe they put it together again, and that I'd never actually heard of it. Uh, let's see. Uh, Kelly Lynch was in that one. Uh, uh, that is George Hickenlooper. Uh, well, Joe Montaigne again, actually. And J.T. Walsh, the definitive uh, character actor. <laughs> I do believe we had a young movie star in that. Keep looking. Look down the list. Well, actually, uh, a movie star and a director. you got Naomi Watts and John Favreau. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> a couple of little names. I, remember doing, I have to see that again at some point. Yeah, the, a few movies with Hickenlooper, you know, uh, Legion, Man of Legion Fields and that, and there were always a couple more that, you know, even when he passed away, we were still talking, I remember a week or so before about something he wanted to do, and I loved old crazy George and <laughs> Ambition. He's fucked up, and a lovely guy, and I, uh, I enjoyed working with him, and I, I forget who his producing partner was, but southern guy a lot of fun and yeah we just had a ball doing that thing yeah Naomi that's where I know her from yeah <laughs> the uh producer and Favreau, Favreau was like a big fan of mine I remember at the time he was like he really, he really young and he loved me from Sydney and he's like Favreau um I think you could hire me at some point don't you <laughs> if remember you were a big fan you do these big big fucking movies where they actually pay actors I'd like to try doing one of those again one of these days yeah see now I'm already trying to cast you in some Marvel movie that he missed out on yeah I'm gonna get in touch with Tom Pearl <laughs> uh, dude, I, love, I love what he does too I just love everything that he does and the way he does it he's just fucking great I need to see uh, Jungle Book I've heard nothing but raves about it yeah, uh, let's see. Then, uh, of course, you haven't used any of your cards yet, which you still have any right to, but you don't have to. I'll take any story you want to give. <laughs> but uh, I guess I'm just a natural yacker. <laughs> well, next up is the uh, the cherry orchard, and I think when I wrote you, I mentioned it wasn't like the the play is not that obscure, really, but uh, the production seems to be because it looks like you're certainly one of few, if not the only uh, American in the cast. Yeah, I'm the only. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, but hardly obscure material. True. Uh, the director uh, had done Zorba the Greek, Iphigenia at Aulis, Electra. He was in his 80s, and he had, uh, I won't say lost his mind, he had crystallized into the sort of epitome of what he always had been, I guess, a uh, maestro of the old school, and I shot all this footage, that uh, it was all on videotape, of uh, the making of, I've got to dig that up. 
up at some point and see. I've had some of it transferred over at a certain point just so it wouldn't deteriorate because he was so fascinating to watch. Michaelis Kakiyanis. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, we had Alan Bates, who had been in Zorba the Greek, and uh, Charlotte Rampling. Um, it, had, it was going to be Julie Christie until the last minute, and then uh, Charlotte stepped in for her. And um, but God knows all these British character actors that everybody knows the face of in a heartbeat, but young discoveries like Jerry Butler, Gerard Butler's second movie, and uh, my dear friend Andrew Howard, who's constantly uh, on the rise, <laughs> Welsh actor, wonderful Welsh actor, and my dear, dear friend, Melanie Linsky, who, uh, a New Zealander, who made her uh, splash on the scene at 15 in Heavenly Creatures. Absolutely. Opposite Kate. And uh, is still just blowing people away every time they see her on screen, and they probably don't recognize her from one thing to the next because she's just spectacular. She's just one of my favorite actors out there, Melanie Linsky. And um, yeah, we all fell in love. That that whole experience um, was unlike anything else from the from the first table reading. First of all, he went Kakianas went around the world for over a year to pick all of us. <laughs> and sorry, to another a pop up here. Quite all right. Our art project just popped up. Sorry. Um, and he cast faces and actors. He, he wanted very specific physical types as well as um, voices, as well as acting ability. And he cast the upper class of Alan and, and Charlotte as the brother and sister who own the cherry orchard to be the aristocrats. Michael Goff, the original Butler and Batman, all these early Batman movies, um, was the uh, you know man of the house. But Butler, there, I think I can't remember exactly the name of his character, but he's on his last legs. But also part of the old aristocracy. They did, we didn't put on Russian accents, but um, we all used our own accents. But uh, to demonstrate the different regional peasant accents in Russia was Kakianis' concept, but that he had all of us that spoke well, and we had to eliminate the specificity of our accents. And he pointed out to us that, you know, if I spoke and I said water, he goes, no, 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 it is not water, it is not a D, it is a T, water. <laughs> And if uh, Jer Gerard Butler, Jerry Butler, Jerry said uh, thousands, because he's Scottish, he goes, no, no, what is this thousand? It is not thousand, it is thousand. Okay, so you say a thousand times, not thousand, not that. He's a little tiny guy, little little fringe of hair that he would have his assistant dutifully dye. We, we used to joke, imagine that it was his assistant that would do the rinse for him. Um, uh, so he had this sort of purpley blue hair much of the time, never getting the, the, the uh, formula quite right on his hair dye. Uh, always holding the rosary beads. He was just such a character, this little Greek madman, maestro. And from the first table reading, where we all sat around the table in this room upstairs at the ex-king of Bulgaria's estate, 
which apparently was chosen as our location to shoot because it had the biggest cherry orchard anywhere in the world. And we would be shooting it uh, for two or three months, I can't remember. Um, but that it would, uh, it would come into bloom towards the conclusion of filming when we would shoot the scenes in the cherry orchard itself. But that we would shoot in the, uh, in the, in the different rooms of this incredible palace that was given to us. Bulgaria had just come out of communism about nine years earlier and was still reeling from it. We stayed in these slab uh, communist hotels in town in Sofia, um, the, the, the Rodina, and um, Charlotte and uh, a couple of other poshies stayed over at the uh, this one little boutique hotel, but uh, the rest of us were all in the Rodina, and we bonded because of it. We wrote poems and odes to it. Um, but um, that that experience was unbelievable. So the, the table read starts out with him giving everyone in the entire cast line by line line readings, which at the time, no, obviously for many years, no one gives line readings. And uh, he was just going to tell you exactly how he heard it in his head. <laughs> and how he wanted us to do it from, from the beginning. And I, I remember calling my father on some pay phone and just saying, oh my God, he's, he's giving us all line readings. And, and he said, well, you know, they say you can only learn by doing things differently than you've ever done them before. It's the only way to keep learning. And so I would imagine if Alan can submit himself to the issue, Go ahead and go for it, 100%. You're bound to learn something from it. And, uh, he was right. But it was really hard to shake free of that voice of Kakianis in your head while you were working um, because you'd hear it. But he, he, there was something to it, like musical notes. I remember Jerry Gerard Butler coming out of the, the reading, and we were all just kind of in a state of mild shock. And he said, you know, it's incredible. Like he's, he's spot on with every single one of those lines. I mean, when you hear each person say it, after after he's, he's pronounced it to them and, and, and they say it, it's perfect. Except with me, he's completely fucking arsed. And that was, <laughs> that was the way we all felt. It was just, so you could hear it with every person, but like, oh my God, do not put that stranglehold on me. <laughs> and... It was it was that way, and it's 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 funny because it was a near. You haven't seen this either, have you? No, I have not. Yeah, it's it's amazing because it could have been a masterpiece if he had let someone else edit it. But he was so in love. He spent six years writing the film script. I mean, it, it puts it up on the film credit. It's, um, you know, the Cherry Orchard by Michaelis, written by Michaelis Kakianis, based on a. <laughs> Based on a play by Anton Chekhov, <laughs> a small <laughs> side note. Um, he had this massive ego, a little man with this big ego. I remember him coming down from the hotel in the morning and saying uh, things while we're waiting to be picked up. He goes, you know, Bergman and I, we are the only ones left, you know. <laughs> <laughs> They've all died. We've all died. They've all died. Just here and I now the greats, the masters, and 
you know, in his first set, was trying to cheer us up about things to like about the hotel. <laughs> Stony silence in the hotel. Until we, we, we were good once we were over at the King's Palace, but the hotel was grim. And he goes, have you tried the rabbit on a tile at the hotel restaurant upstairs? It's quite good. <laughs> rabbit, it's the best meat. Better than chicken. <laughs> just march off. Well, on a completely different uh, flavor, uh, next up would be uh, Tom Clancy's Net Force. Yeah. That is, uh, yeah. I, I'm not, that's another one that, actually, that one I think I may have seen when it was originally on, so I can't remember if it really was particularly prescient in terms of uh, internet crime or not. But uh, that definitely was the topic of it. Yeah, that, you know, Clancy, dead ahead of his time. I remember, I mean, just in terms of the avatars that people hid behind to do their online crimes and these chat rooms and everything. It's like, I didn't even know what the fuck this thing was about when I read it at the time. I literally, um, on my way back from Bulgaria, while I was in Bulgaria, I got offered this thing. And it, uh, I, I stopped in New York, see my family and for a week and started NetForce the next week while well on the East Coast and in D.C. and Virginia. Um, and it was um, very ahead of its time in terms of the concept of it, maybe too much so, maybe that's why it didn't reach a, a bigger audience, or maybe it did, I don't know, it was a movie of the week. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it was a miniseries, I think, actually. Right, right, right. It was a miniseries. Yeah, we shot it for a while. So, yeah. Another Dennehy thing. I did a bunch of Dennehy things. I did another miniseries with him up in Toronto years ago. And Chris Christopherson um, also. Chris Christopherson. You know, I'm, to this day, I'm just pissed off. Because I, I worked with him. I had scenes with him. And we joked around and we hung out and we chatted and everything. But sometimes you try, when you work with people that are legends like him, you just want to be cool and you just want to hang out and just be one of the and not be like fan fanboy and and asking questions that you feel like everybody asks him all the time yeah but fuck I'm pissed off that I didn't ask him more questions about different songs that he's written because he's such a great songwriter and you just you hear like Al Green do you know one of his songs and you hear different people do his songs and, and you you just hear the lyrics in a new way and go, wow, what a brilliant songwriter. Um, I wish I'd asked him a little bit more about that. I know he's a road scholar and he's a bright guy. I can't remember. I think you may have actually uh, hit like on this one I posted on Facebook, but he left me what may be the greatest voicemail of my life where he uh, said uh, he'd forgotten something during the call and he said, uh, well, I'll... I'll I'll think of it. I'm, I'm sure the second I get off the phone, I'll call you back. And lo and behold, he, I get this voicemail. Uh, yeah, uh, well, uh, yeah, the actor I was trying to think of who liked the, 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 my song was uh, Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum. <laughs> and, and there's this pause, and he goes, this is Chris, by the way. <laughs> like, yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that voice. <laughs> yeah, voice identification. <laughs> Yeah, it was a Chris, by the way. 
You know, it's funny, Mitchum's name escapes me from time to time. He's like one of my favorite like movie stars of all time. But for some reason, I guess because of the Mitchum and Robert, there's just something like the Robert I just doesn't stick with me. And I, I'm, I'm, I find myself like stabbing, it takes me a beat or two. And that's why it's funny that he couldn't remember his name because... It's, 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 it's the Mitchum thing that, that uh, throws me off. It's almost like almost the first name. It's like it gets scrambled in there. Um, his performance in Out of the Past, one of my all-time favorite noirs and performances on film. Um, side note. But, um, yeah, the Net Force, we, again, it's just, you know, you, you hang out and you're shooting in a prison that was uh, about to become one of the big state lockdown, brand new, state-of-the-art, massive prison, and it hadn't been open for business yet. And we were shooting in that. I just remember we were shooting all nights. And uh, Paul Hewitt and uh, Odile Corso, she's now Odile Corso because she married the makeup artist who's dear friend of mine, Billy Corso, on that from that movie um, I actually did the ceremony marrying the two of them those awesome awesome people Billy Corso has won Academy Awards makeup artist extraordinaire William Corso and Odile um, his wife wonderful people and uh, but there was just a great group of us that hung out while we were working all night and I can remember we on one occasion we just had such a long, hard night. Sometimes you need that wrapped beer to unwind before going to sleep. Sure, sure. Uh, and Lynn Felouche is a, an actor still, and she's just had a kid, and she's sort of dropped in and out of business, I think, a little bit. She's on the East Coast. Um, she went up to Toronto, I forget. She was in our gang, and very obscure actors, a, a young uh, Aj, Ajay... Uh, I can't remember his name, the young Indian actor. Just heard from him not long ago. Oh, Andrew, 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 I didn't get to work with him because I was the bad guy. Um, but what's his name? The star of it? Oh, Scott Bakula. Scott Bakula, such a good guy, such a, a mensch. <laughs> my wife got to work with him recently and just confirmed my experiences every time I ever ran into him. He's just such a good man. But um, yeah, the, I can remember the, the group of bad guys that we were all holed up together, that plotted together. We just had one of those crazy long nights, and uh, and we all just um, and there was one crazy kid in our group who was a PA, but uh, he's a producer now, and, and he was the uh, the director's son-in-law. His name is Trent Othick, and he's a really really good friend of mine we became friends because we would organize on weekends for everybody to go out to the Shaco Bottom and in Richmond Virginia to go hear good music live music sometimes when you're working really crazy long hours people need that bonding off the set and just hanging out and having a good time and, but 
one one night that we wrapped and it was now daybreak <clears throat> and we didn't have to work the next day and we all just decided we we're going to go have our wrap beer in the in the cemetery and the the drivers you know stopped and we picked up our little six packs or whatever it was and we went over to the local cemetery some tiny little ancient cemetery <clears throat> just sat on these graves and, and drank beer and, and watched the sun come up and uh and it's just something like those little experiences it's not like getting bucked up it's not like doing anything it's just like when the rest of the world is sleeping or getting up you just feel like you're, you're this band of gypsies and you're bonding because you're in the graveyard and you're drinking beer as the sun's coming up and you've just had a you've worked all night you've earned it but you've done something that you know that people all sort of dream about doing and you've done it and now you're going to go home back to your hotel some shady little hotel that's the best they've got in petersburg virginia wherever you're shooting and and, and you're all going to go and shut the windows and the blackout curtains and the, put the do not disturb signs up and you're going to sleep into the day when everybody else is going to their office jobs and you just feel like this you know, a rebel an outsider <clears throat> but bonded with your your cohorts and your band of gypsies and more and that's that's what we felt in and i'll just go back for a second to the experience of the cherry orchard to me summed it up so completely um we would all hang out because we were you're in a country where nobody speaks the same language and not a lot of people speaking english in bulgaria and at the time you know still recovering from communism like i said and they when they when they wanted to say no they shake their head the way we say they, they nod as, as if we would be saying yes and when they want to say yes they shake their head like it's no and, <laughs> and then they wobble their head from side to side when it's maybe and it's all these these things are so disorienting and so you bond so heavily when the only people that speak your language or even give the same head signals as you are those that you're working with and you go out into these excursions on your days off and you've got your little guidebook and you're saying is this and you stop in a hotel where you it sort of looks like you're heading in the right direction and you point and you say is this garden this way is this this way this garden and they go no is this way only is little bit of suffering <laughs> okay so then maybe we'll try that way <laughs> and, and you know the uh the banding together and like the final scene in the cherry orchard the, the ex-king of bulgaria's estate had um all the, the cherry blossoms were in full bloom we're now at, at a nighttime sequence. We're shooting our last scene in the movie, which Kakanis uh, had saved everybody. He wanted everybody there from the beginning to the end, so that we would have this bonding experience, as which fed into the story of the film. And that when everybody leaves the cherry orchard for the last time, because it's been sold and it's being broken up, and the old world is shifting and. And now the new world is taking over by this crass new uh, person that's gotten rich and can buy the cherry orchard but has no class and elegance and dignity like the old world. I won't say that that reminds me of in this day and age. Um, but uh, 
Kakianos wanted to to have everybody that was a part of this old world, that was a part of living at the cherry orchard, making their final exits, leaving. And um, one by one, we would sit outside on this this uh, balcony, old marble carved, gorgeous balcony right outside the, the massive back doors um, that we were making our exits when there was rain, special effects on the windows, and we're all bundled up as we make our final exits, or each of our characters that we sit one after the other, he just set that up for the exits. <laughs> and that was the end of, of the movie, like the, the last scenes that we were to shoot were all those 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 particular exits that were intercut towards the end of the film. And so we all sat and watched as each new person came out. And then that was the wrap on the movie. And it, with each person that made their exit, we just listened in silence and watched. And we were all in tears by the end of it. And because we knew we were never going to be together again as a family yeah. that we all come from like a hundred broken families as as gypsies doing what we do it's not like where you have one you know job where you you have all your co-workers you fall madly in love because you know it's only for this long and you're together in this bubble of time bond in particular especially when you're in foreign countries where they don't speak the language and and you have each other and you have this story that you're telling that's life and death and emotionally compelling and you tell it and then it reaches its end and you all go your own ways and in this case we all live in different countries and we just watched it end and we're smelling the cherry blossoms in the night air and taking it in in the late spring and and we all just sat together and kind of had a group cry and uh, saw this is our lives and every every five years or so you have one of those experiences where you just it just sums up this is what it is to be a journeyman actor and a gypsy on on the on the real circuit that's an awesome story, though. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it's a, it's a, a little bit that the, from that little Tom Clancy thing uh, that for us that I, I sometimes I flash and just the little group of six of us that sat on those gravestones in similar silence, drinking beers as the sun came up. It's like a, we didn't talk about it then; we just sort of felt it. And then, and I've seen those people since, and we've all. We'll never forget that that little moment. Where we all maybe we talked about it a little bit. We're like, wow, oh, we're really separate from the rest of the world in a lot of ways, in good ways. But yeah, we're connected because people then see it. And um, only recently have I started because of these conventions with The Walking Dead connecting with my audience that have seen things I've done over the years. Because I'm never very good. I'm at my tape, my desk now and. I'm, I get a big pile of fan mail at the same time, and it, it arrives all at once instead of one at a time. It, my managers get it, and then they deliver it like 
at these intervals and it's just so much to get through and I'm always so busy I've got kids I've got work and I'm a painter I've got my studio here and I'm always distracted and I'll try and peck away at it and then it always gets confused and I forget which pictures went to which letters and which envelopes and then I gotta get stamps and send them off to foreign countries I gotta and I've never been very good at it but it's been really sweet just doing these conventions I never thought I'd be the type to do it but you you get to connect with this audience that you've been connecting with over the years, uh, and it's, it's it's satisfying because when I say you're apart from the rest of the world, it's not to try and be like better than or isolated from. It's just it's a little bit you know you definitely are committing when you become an actor, you are committing to an unconventional lifestyle and to a, a life of perpetual uncertainty because you never have a solid job for the rest of your life it's always going to be one after the next and always constant unemployment and uncertainty and uh, you pay a price for that but you also bond i think more maybe because of it uh, let's see then uh, only two more last two last is uh day one yeah it's so funny you're picking these ones because you're you're picking all these ones where that thing that i'm talking about happened <laughs> Well, that was one I picked in particular, uh, one because it's kind of a high-profile pilot that didn't actually go to series. But also, there's an obvious uh, connection between that and The Walking Dead. Oh, right. Yeah, I never thought about that. Well, you know, that's because it didn't go to series. It got picked up for series. Yeah. And then we all got paid off because it uh, NBC changed hands. And, you know, they're so primal these studio executives they don't want to take something that somebody else had anything to do with because then they won't get credit for it it's like dogs peeing on things <laughs> it really is silly it's silly it, 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 it annoys the hell out of me because that was a great show and it had a great cast and a great crew and we all bonded big time i remember carly pope had this great idea we all loved each other so much and the crew and it's just that it doesn't happen it, it does happen like every five years if you're lucky um and you know certainly the walking dead is a great example but, but man you gotta go you go through you go through some deserts and and through some really high hard climbs to get to those experiences where there's just no assholes where there's no egos where everybody's <laughs> Uh, just in it for the love of doing it and is genuinely a good, kind, nice person and and giving and, and uh, sensitive and appreciative of each other and, and uh, the ensemble aspect of what, what it is we do as actors and then how dependent we are on the crew and, and treat the crew and everybody with respect and, and, and vice versa. But there's no sort of resentment or condescension from the crew towards the cast and and it's all just a, a harmonious blending of energies and creative forces pulling towards one goal the telling of this story and and day one was that it was the cast and the crew was unbelievable and uh and whoever was going you know and it got picked up because of that and and then they changed heads heads of the studio, and then that guy doesn't want the credit. Well, he, he missed out. He blew it. 
because he would have had a great team on his hands. We we knew so much so, like I said, Carly uh, just got all the actors to pull together to put up money to throw a party for the for the uh, a rap party for the crew. Um, just to thank them for being so amazing. A lot of the crew was from West Wing, and and uh, we knew how lucky we were to be getting them. And uh, it's just when I remember that rap party, it was like, wow, this thing's gonna get picked up, and it's gonna be fucking amazing. And, <laughs> and then they, they 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 chose to pay us not to work instead of giving the thing a shot because it it would have given credit to somebody else. I don't know. Silly. Uh, last one on the list is Death of... The Death of Socrates and or the Gadfly, as it's also known. Um, wonderful experience that came my way. Uh, and the director had been a commercial director up until then, Stev Ellum and uh, now a dear friend as a result of that experience and um, who's gone on to direct films and I knew he would uh, features um, he uh, had been approached by a woman who does big sort of like Bill Viola museum video installations and I can't remember this woman's name. She's uh, from another country. And she had a concept to take the transcripts of Plato's uh, writings of Socrates' final plea before the court uh, for his life um, and taking directly from those transcripts and using that as an eight more, I think, eight or nine piece, eight segments, nine segments uh, of Socrates being portrayed by different actors in different countries, by different directors, with some sort of a, the dogma was that um, no one could uh, wear the same, no, no, there were no togas, to be worn, it was black and white. Uh, no, I think I can't remember. Was it? I think I think it had to be in black and white. You had to show the city um, that it was being shot in, and and that was it. And the transcripts had to be verbatim. And I got to play Socrates, and I based it on Michael Kapianis because they're both Greek. He was the uh, the biggest Greek ego I knew and, and closest thing to a genius. I do think Kakianis had elements of genius about him. <laughs> and um, so I sort of channeled my, my Michaelis Kakianis when I did my Socrates. That, if you haven't seen it, holds up. It's on my website, xanaberkeley.net. Excellent. I think it's under the gadfly. Okay. My segment. And they, they were, I don't know, they were having trouble getting the rights of all the different things strung together. I, I think they finally did get it together, but I never saw the whole thing with all the different Socrates strung together. Well, I think that should do it. I think you've uh, suffered enough. I really appreciate you being on the show. Well, it was an absolute 
pleasure being your guest again. I'm flattered, honored, and I hope I didn't blather on too long in any particular response to any of your questions. I look forward to the next one. Always a pleasure, Will. You've been listening to Obscurity Knox, and now you're not. Look for us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just remember on Twitter, Knox is spelled K-N-O-X, and we're not bitter about that. No, really, we're not. Also, for a slightly more detailed look into the projects covered by this week's guest, head over to newsreviewsinterviews.com. Thanks for checking us out, and don't be afraid to check us out again. If you keep listening, we'll keep digging for more obscurities. See you next time.